Welcome to the Michelle Miao Show, your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. Thank you so much for joining us here on Thursday, every Thursday at noon. I'm here recording for the Progressive Voices Network with my co-host, John Zipper, who hosts his own program, Week to Week Political Roundtable Talk. John, you had a great program last night. A lot of fun, lots to talk about. State of the Union certainly helps. Yeah, and, and uh, show us, you know, show us the most important part of the State of the Union. You kind of did it earlier. I just kind of want to see. Well, this will really go over well for people listening on the radio on the podcast. But no, I, I think I want to see the photo of Nancy Pelosi doing the, the long arm applause. <laughs> Yours is so much nicer than, I mean, we've got to work on that. You and I. There are many versions of that. that you've probably seen of altered photos of, yeah. of uh, hand gestures she might be making. But uh, yeah, I think Pelosi probably won the evening. Yeah, and, and the club was very busy last night because you had uh, an interesting guest, Chris Christie. We had two programs going on last night. There was yeah. my political roundtable on the first floor, and then the big auditorium we had, <coughs> excuse me, yes, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, apparently telling some pretty interesting stories about Donald Trump. Yeah. So well, I actually want to watch that one. Well, I'll go look for it. We have an exciting guest here today. Um, I'm very excited and I'm very grateful and thankful that uh, this energy that we're bringing into the club today is the right kind of energy for the evening that I had last night. I was out for the first time in so many years and went to the Castro where they were doing two for ones. And this is how crazy of a party animal I am. I had to stop the bartender from giving me the free one. <laughs> no, no, no. Don't give it to me. It's just so free. So so I'm very... Uh, Donate it to another. <laughs> uh, let's just say I'm glad we're not dissecting the State of the Union speech. Instead, we have Tina D'Elia, who is a, an award-winning casting director, actress, writer, um, and apparently a... a, a person of many characters, I guess you could say. Tina, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Michelle. Thank, I, I'm honored to be here. And thank you, John. Yeah. Thanks, everybody, for being yeah, it's here. Yeah. I believe it's your first time here. Yes. And we've got a great view. Yes. Uh, you've got a program coming up at the Brava Theater in which you're going to do a solo show, Overlook Latinas, and we'll yeah. talk about that. Great. But first, do us the honor yes. of coming out again here on the show. Yes. <laughs> um, I love coming out again and again and again. Um, I identify as a mixed race, Latina, queer, lesbian, dyke, person of loving LGBTQI communities. Yeah. And then for you, yes, recognizing that, realizing it. When was that? I'm, I, you know, I'll yeah. share a story. I've been open about this here, but I grew up very into soap opera. So the oh the God. first female fantasy I had was with Susan Lucci. Oh my God, that's great! <laughs> <laughs> so for you, that's fantastic. Yes. Well, um, so 1987, I came out. I was in high school. Uh, I did have my first girlfriend, even though it was sort of like. Completely torch song, short-lived, later reunited, almost 11 years later. I know. Again, another, like, you know, love affair. It was the 80s, so um, definitely, you know, goth meets punk. I was more like, you know, artsy, fartsy Madonna. She was more, you know, goth and what have you. Great. She was a great artist. Uh, she is a great artist. Uh, and... 
Um, so vampire stuff was really in. So everybody I knew saw um, uh, Catherine Deneuve and David Bowie and... The Hunger. The Hunger. So The Hunger was a big film to watch. But even before that, right before I came out, I couldn't stop watching Black Widow with Teresa Russell and Deborah Winger. I know, for those of you, I'm dating myself, which is great. Um, (laughs) Oh, I know all about him. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, dating myself, at least for Michelle and some folks. Um, Because of all of the sort of the storylines, so it was more like you had to find it. so yeah, I was very I mean, I was completely starstruck by my first by my first uh girlfriend because that was when I because that was when I came out and then when I went to college um I can't, now I'm trying to remember there was but there was probably so many right, so ma- so many more things were percolating because now we were moving into um uh late 80s, early 90s. And then later on, it was sort of like the whole, so from um, Act Up to Queer Nation and Riot Girls. So there were a lot more sort of total crushes I had. Um, but I, a lot of times I was looking for kind of like the, uh, the person of color, James Dean Butch. Mm. And if I didn't, couldn't find her, then I would write her in my stories because that was what told what I should do. <laughs> if they don't exist, write them. And then they might appear. Yeah. They might come to fruition. How about as far as coming out to your family? I mean, did they know already or did you have to, was it wonderful, tragic, hurtful? Well, what was it like? Great question. Um, So some of it was very, with some of my family, I came out pretty quickly Mm -hmm. um, with my first girlfriend in high school. But my dad was whom I really, I kept it under wraps until... I think after college. So not that, you know, he, not that he wasn't probably guessing something. Um, so my, my mom certainly raised me to be a feminist. Mm-hmm. And I think that in a way there was this evolution as a kid that kind of like I had this pathway that I could always see. And it was about sort of um, uh, whether my own understanding of my own identity and other people's identity. So... Um, so in other words, when I was a kid, right, there wasn't sort of like queer and trans and all these identities. I, I didn't have sort of things to grab onto, but I was always looking for sort of like, as a small child, I was looking at, you know, I was like, I'm not a tomboy, but I think tomboys are really amazing. And so, um, my mom was very perceptive. Mm -hmm. So once my heart was already broken in high school, she knew I must be in love with my friend. Mom's pretty, pretty perceptive. We're pretty pretty close. So, so I came out to my mom and she didn't know what that meant, you know, like, sure. Like, kind of like my mom was sort of like, like, yeah, sure. My daughter's bisexual, but what does that mean? Cause I didn't really have language yet. Am I bisexual? Am I gay? So this was before college when I was like, mom, let me, let me, let me put the gavel down. I, I got my gold card. I was like, oh my God, you got your gold card. You're really the lesbian. <laughs> like, you know, gold card was a big thing in the nineties. 
you know, by the time you came out, Michelle, maybe you didn't have a gold card. I thought that the toaster was involved in this Exactly. Process. You know, the toaster was evolved, but first it was the card. Oh, got it. You okay. Know, was, you know, like I want the card. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Bring back the card. <laughs> so I came out to my mom, my brother, who's two years older than me, who's also an artist, my sister, who's five years younger than me. And I think for them, it was all, it was sort of like, oh, okay, this kind of makes sense. We sort of know who you are. Um, and part of it was because my girlfriend was like really out there and unique. I, th- I think they were trying to process that, especially my younger sister. Like, who is this orange, black haired, wearing, <laughs> you know, goth makeup girlfriend of yours? Like, she's kind of, well, she's a little, you know, <laughs> eccentric. <laughs> but as time went on, you know, like everybody had kind of their favorite, like who is their favorite girlfriend. And then later on, I also started dating um, trans men. And so then, you know, again, who was their favorite was all about kind of like who they, you know, clicked with the most. Mm-hmm. So my dad, um, I wasn't, I didn't have the best finesse, but my mom was like, I mean, your father goes to Catholic church every day. You know, he, he's a Southern Italian, you know, like he, he's, he's not going to be able to handle this. So how, how are you going to keep me from keeping my mouth shut? I mean, I'm an actor. I'm a perf- I wear all these hats. I've got a big mouth. Not about everything, granted, <laughs> but at least about who I am. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not very subtle. <laughs> so, uh, I was on the radio for MIT. It must have been like 1992. Mm-hmm. And apparently what I was missing was that my mom and my dad and my sister um, and her, it's her husband now, but it was her boyfriend at the time, were all listening to the radio. Mm-hmm. And I came out and I think the word, you know, like, I am a lesbian really was, you know, my dad might have choked on his vegetarian <laughs> meal and um, and had to leave um, and had to leave the uh, had to leave the table like, God dang it, Carmela, I, you know, John, come back here. We're listening to Tina, <laughs> you know, Carmela. No, but I love my mother. He might have even turned off the radio. I don't remember it. And that but like, I love my mom. I think she was just like, turn on the radio. Come back, John, sit down. We're going to listen to Tina. You know, sure, she just came out as a lesbian and you didn't know that, but oh well. <laughs> Meanwhile, my sister said that it was really comfortable with her boyfriend there having wow. dinner, watching that whole upset. Mm-hmm. That was that was me coming out to my dad on the radio. Oh my um, gosh. But um I I think in a way, even though that wasn't the best way to come out to my dad. You wouldn't recommend it to I wouldn't recommend okay. it to other people. On one hand, I feel like unconsciously, I, 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 it was sort of my own way of being like, how do I get around this? Yeah. Um, and it, it, what did help was that by the time I was seeing my dad, is I figured it would give him some time to absorb the information. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that he did absorb the information, and I think that he did become more comfortable. Because then the next layers was once I was bringing – girlfriends and uh and my boyfriends that were that are transgender and introducing my mom would sort of figure out where she would click with people and my dad would barely make eye contact you know and then his level of comfort was once he he really accepted that person then he'd start making eye contact but that was sort of my my dad's level of acceptance so that was my wow 
1992. I came out <laughs> on the radio. That's been an amazing right. story. Yes. Um, Wouldn't so, recommend it, but... <laughs> uh, John had asked this before yes. the show started, and I wanted to ask it, but, you know, yeah, San Francisco now yeah. creating, producing art in this city that many of us who've been here for a long time feel like are, are you know, who we are, our communities, we're just dispersed, and, yep. and some of it diminishing. Um, but I wanted to ask when you got here and, and, you know, why and what brought you to San Francisco? Yes. So I, I was wanting to move to, to San Francisco from Boston. Um, I grew up in Boston, Massachusetts. And uh, my brother lived here for a long time and had kind of sort of <laughs> kept pushing me like, I don't understand. Why don't, why don't you live here? Um, and I knew a lot of folks that lived out here. So I was actually seeing somebody who was living here at the time. And so I would come and visit, and then I start to uh, plant the seeds. So um, I performed it in bed with Fairy Butch. There was like a night of solo perform- so- night of um, performance poets, and then Sister Spit was doing a fundraiser. So I performed. It was like I was sort of networking with all mm-hmm. all of the fabulous queer players, and I was in a film at the Frameline Festival in 1998. So, you know, planting seeds, planting seeds. And I'm like, I should really, I should really move here. I should really, I should really make it happen. Um, and it was right around the time of the dot-com boom. And I thought, sure, I'll find an apartment. <laughs> Yikes. Um, and what I was really excited about is I've done nonprofit work for over 25 years. So I was working at the Boston Area, Boston Area Rape Crisis Center. I was working... Uh, when I would go to conferences and ha- making friends with people at SF4, they introduced me to people at Community United Against Violence. And so when I moved here, I was doing some work part-time, and then I was working um, uh, temporarily at Community United Against Violence, KUAV, and then I worked for KUAV for 10 years. So I already knew before I moved here that there were nonprofits that I loved. I loved all of the queer, trans-diverse communities that were here. I mean, the... Um, and at that time as well, because I know that, you know, as we all should know, so many people are getting displaced here because it's really hard to live in San Francisco and the Bay Area and even the East Bay now. However, um, yeah, at, the, at that time, I was, I was so excited about um, moving to cities that had such large communities and, you know, visible, outspoken. I felt at home. I was like... I was like, yes, this makes sense. And I knew that sometimes relationships don't work out. But if it was the impetus to help me get here quicker, that was a good reason. Mm. Mm. (laughs) So that's what happened. (laughs) Though the relationship did not work out, it got me here. And I was so grateful because once I got here, I really understood. I was like, I'm supposed to be, you know, continuing my, my work and all the things that I love to do. And um, and so many people that I met before I moved here, mm. including one of my good friends and director, Mary Guzman, who's the director of my solo show and other shows. So many people I'd already met before I moved here. And that was that to me was really exciting because oh. if I can give any advice to people out there listening, if you move to another city, you're dating somebody, make sure you have a community as well mm-hmm. to have support. Mm-hmm. We'll ask about that. Yes. Maybe in a different show. John. We were talking just before we started about kind of all the different hats you yes. wear. You wear a lot. But one of them is clearly activist. 
For sure. Did that grow out of, like you said, your mother, you know, raising you to yes. be a feminist? Did she also, was she involved in this stuff? Or was there some point in your life where you're like, I need to do stuff? Yes, it was, it was completely influenced by my mother. Mm-hmm. Oh, good, 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 good. Guess, John. My work here is done. <laughs> yes. It's- Show over. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Tina, Tina D'Elia at the Bravo Theater. Uh, opening up for February 16th. No. Keep, yeah. So yes. Mom. So my mother um, is who politicized me. And I, and I was very fortunate to go to schools like the Cambridge School of Weston and Earlham College that had a lot of very active political social justice folks on campus. So even the high school and the college that I went to, there was even actions like on campus or that we would go outside of campus or that we would vote on. Like my high school, we had a town hall. There was a student moderate. Like there was a lot of things that I was involved with at school. So that helped. But my mom brought me to my first um, march on Washington in March of Oh, I don't remember. It was 1983, U.S. out of El Salvador with my sister. And so I was 11 or 12. My sister was like seven or eight. And what was important was, so my mother is mixed race Mexican, and she grew up for 16 years of her life in Cali, Colombia. And so she was involved in all the Central American politics. Mm-hmm. And my first film that I co-wrote with Mary, with Maria Bro, that we won a Frameline Award, was called Lucha. And it was influenced by my mom because it was about closeted lesbians um, in El Salvador escaping, trying to, with the Civil War. Mm-hmm. And what I did was I also connected with my friend Ana Lazo, who's an amazing activist, queer, um, but who lives in the Bay Area. And she, her family, she was our, a lot of times what you do to support people in the community is you hire someone who actually has gone through those experiences. I highly recommend that. So hiring our queer Latinx consultant who actually went to El Salvador and took footage for Maria and I. I know I'm jumping ahead to films, but that film was really important because it was based on, you know, that 80s politicizing. So in Boston, my mother worked with refugees. She worked for a Central American organization. Um, she would bring me to marches and rallies. And so what I was trying to do was, was reach um, queer folks that were affected that stories might have been silenced about what was happening in Central America. At any rate, so, so yeah, so, so a lot of people will ask me, like, w- like when you co-wrote that film with Maria Bro, what was the impetus? And I would say, well, you know, my, I was like, well, my mother and how she was politicizing um, my siblings and I. And, um, and so as a kid, a lot of times when my mother would say, you know, sort of look to, look to really politicized and, um, self-educated movie stars, people that really had a sense of um, who they are and what they do. And I did so much research. So a lot of people know me from the Rita Hayworth of this generation, my other solo show that won a solo award here that, um, that my director, Mary Guzman, directed, which was great in the Bay Area. And, you know, so even back in the 90s, I was trying to find, uh, I was trying to do what my mother suggested, which is to try to find um, stars, because a lot of people don't know that Rita Hayworth was mixed race Spanish. I didn't. Yeah. And she was whitewashed um, in Hollywood. But she ran uh, her own. And I'm guessing Rita Hayworth then was not her real name. Exactly. So she was uh, Margarita Cancino. Really? And her father was a very famous Spanish dancer and dance teacher then in Hollywood. Yes. I know. 
Again, good guesses. This is great. <laughs> and, uh, and it was questionable whether her grandfather was uh, Romani. Um, so, uh, yeah, there was a whole story about her. Could she, she, could, she could take up a whole segment. <laughs> so, even in the, so even in the 90s, when I was working at the Rape Crisis Center, doing um, – so I was already doing queer activism. So a bunch of us were already out in Boston. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, that was when the first dyke marches were, were starting. So I was involved in that in Boston before I came to the dyke marches here. And I was involved in the dyke march community in San Francisco from like 2000. I co emceed from like 2000 to 2005. So I was doing that in Boston. Rita Hayworth. Yes. So <laughs> – so back in the early 90s, it was called the Latin craze. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what that essentially meant was suddenly people were like, oh, my goodness, there's, there's, there's Latinos and Latinas that actually are performers. You know, like, what a surprise. <laughs> um, and so I was already doing research on who Rita Hayworth is and realizing that, you know, people just sort of knew her as a movie star. But I really wanted to tell the true story of um, she, like many people in sort of, quote, unquote, the business and vaudeville, she worked her butt off since she was a kid. So she was, you know, she was working on ships before she was even of age. Like she was, um, and then she ran her own production company and et cetera. So, and she actually had a, a political lens herself because uh, not only was she abused like many women by many men and, and the head of Paramount Pictures, but also um, many sort of stars were, put on um, World War II bombs. Their pinups were put on the bombs. Not just the planes, but the actual bombs themselves that, you know, that dropped. So a lot of uh, people had a lot of problems with this. They were like, you know, like, yes, we want the, you know, uh, we're trying to support what's happening in World War II and, um, but don't put our, (laughs) don't put our faces on bombs. And then they put Rita Hayworth on an atomic bomb that dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And, she was, and so Rita Hayworth was really opposed to all of this. She wanted to have a press conference about it. Um, but of course, uh, you know, the media said, you know, like, she was so happy to hear this news. She started crying. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, so I could go on many tangents, but this was about, but, but connecting the roots of both. So there was... So, uh, so there was both work that I was doing, anti-violence work I was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so both at Kuov when I was here, speaking at press conferences, but also speaking at rallies, especially um, speaking out um, with. There was a couple of trans murders of trans women of color that I would that I would go and speak at, you know, both to media but also rallies. Um, and then in Boston, doing a lot of organizing around anti-sexual violence, but trying to also merge um, uh, the, uh, survivors' voices that are queer and me- um, male uh, male survivors and men of color. So there, there I feel like there's work that just um, I started in Boston as a young adult that I continued here. And what was interesting was that. Um, one might have thought like doing anti-violence work is really serious. How does that relate to all the artwork I'm doing? And what was great was, so there would be artists that I would know in Boston, for instance, um, that I would go see. I love their work. They would perform. And then I would say, hey, do you want to perform for a benefit for the Boston Area Rape Crisis Center? And they would say, I love to. Or actually, can I also tell my story? I've never told my story, you know, as 
um, I, uh, a friend of mine, um, may rest in power, Thomas Grimes, uh, an African-American gay man. He was like, not only do I want to perform at your benefit, but I want to tell my story, you know, as a gay man and, um, and as a rape survivor. So there, I, I feel, I feel so passionate about, um, you know, before this idea of sort of, you know, protesting Oscars are so white, you know, my driving force with since I was a kid was like, how can we not just see ourselves, but also see our full selves? So who we are, you know, our values, how can we bring other people along, give people opportunities that we're not just sort of, you know, faces or dancers or what have you, or, you know, you know, I recognize that sometimes I was before the media, I was only speaking, which makes sense because I was working for an anti-violence organization, but I was only speaking when people were murdered yeah. within our communities. And so I felt so strongly that after Kuov, you know, the work that I was doing, how can I be um, really pushing forward um, all of us uh, in terms of the casting world? And in terms of the uh, artistic world. So in my show, I really try to uncover um, queer folks that we didn't know about. Many people didn't know about Ramon Navarro, who was a famous gay Latino man. And many people didn't know that Dolores Del Rio, um, uh, famous um, uh, – so actually they were cousins. So famous Mexican actor, movie star Dolores Del Rio, bisexual, many famous lovers – and Ramon Navarro, famous Mexican actor, silent screen and, and talkie, talkies, um, who had a, um, a great scandalous affair with Valentino that the studios tried to silence. Yes, very exciting. Very, <laughs> all very exciting. Right, Dolores Del Rio had lovers such as Billie Holiday, Josephine Baker, Frida Kahlo, Marlena Dietrich, Greta Garbo. You know, so a lot of information people wouldn't know. But, um, you know, this is... Uh, this is sort of, I can thank my mother <laughs> for this trajectory of really trying to intersect, you know, politics and art and trying to be outspoken and give other people opportunities to be seen and be heard. And what I feel really proud about is, you know, some of the films and things that I've cast, mm-hmm. you know, I get to cast trans women of color in great SAG projects today, you know, great, you know, people of color and, and queer folks in projects today. So I don't just, I'm not just doing work about educating pe- people about our humanity and ending violence, but I'm, but this is about, you know, lifting all of us up and, and recognizing that, um, you know, I, I'm one of those people that believes, um, not only do I want to see, you know, more and more queer people getting hired in queer roles, uh, I for sure want to see trans folks playing trans folks. Go ahead, John. Well, I was just going to say, it, yes. it, it's amazing because there are so many people in not just Hollywood, but in entertainment who yes. will have a political side. Yes. And and I think a, a genuine political uh, cause that they're committed to or something, it's very separate from how they're earning their money. You've intersected all that mm-hmm. and, and I think probably strengthened both sides of that equation. Have you ever had problems professionally mm-hmm. because of your political activism? I... I imagine that I imagine it's come up and and this is what I'm thinking has happened. Um, And and I say this, I say this with um, humbleness and maybe because of also the privileges I have as a cisgender sort of, you know, femme appearing person is 
I probably not asked to do certain things, but I don't know it necessarily. Yeah. I'm maybe not invited to certain places, but I don't know know it necessarily. Um, maybe in the descriptions or the bios, you know, the things that I might write or say, um, I might suddenly say, you know, exposing the McCarthy era or, you know, <laughs> you know, the U.S. government out of El Salvador, <laughs> you know, and someone might say like, okay, I... <laughs> I don't know if I really. I thought she was. I thought she did comedy. <laughs> I thought she was the Latina lesbian Groucho Marx of this generation. Or <laughs> I thought she was just a fun Rita Hayworth. You know, <laughs> right? So that, that's this is that's sort of my feeling. Yeah. Um, uh, and also, and also, um, I I'm imagining this happens too. That if I seem less threatening, that he, that um, that it could be an easy way to just sort of back out and say, you know, like, nice job, but just not engage yeah. versus um, versus if I, if I, you know, was going head to head with somebody and suddenly I knew it was, be, you know. Yeah. So this is sort of what I, this is kind of what I am, imagine right now. Something you said, you know, wow, what a concept that queer folks should play roles in which they're telling their own stories. And it's just so interesting that that's like even a question these days, yeah. especially in Hollywood right. where um, you, it, it gets complex. Even mm-hmm. gay actors will say, well, if we could play the role, then we should play the role. And I just kind of wanted your thoughts on this because yeah. you're a voice that has stayed true to your political side, but also your art yeah. and and your identity. Um, so hearing even Hollywood trying to change, try to diversify and answer this question of should queer people play queer <laughs> roles? I mean, what is that? How do you get around, uh, around that and the importance of it uh, and not get caught up in, you know, arguing the other way? Mm-hmm. Because sometimes people would say, well, it's, it's art. If you can play the role, you should play the role. Um, great question, Michelle. <laughs> no, I get tripped up, too. Yeah. I was mad at Scarlett Johansson for, for wanting sure. to play a trans role. Yes. And then I, I get more mad uh, about, you know, um, cisgender men who want to play yes. trans female roles. Because I think that that's problematic. Yep. I agree. Uh, but then when you have gay actors um, who speak up and they're cisgender and they say, well, straight guys play gay roles and they play them well, then I'm like, okay, maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> maybe I'll go back to my cubby hole. I'm not, you know, an actor or an actress. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yes. Um, I feel like, first of all, I feel like one thing I've gotten to learn from the inside perspective of you know, uh, as a casting director, working with maybe a okay budget, you know, a film uh, film gives you know says you know here's a budget, you know, a decent sized budget. Um, I e I e Netflix Sensate, good sized budget, mm-hmm. so I can send um, I can send a casting director some great folks that wouldn't necessarily have agents and be in the business that are queer, trans people of color. Great, and that works out. Yay, that works out. Um, so now this budget gets smaller and smaller, and it's Tina D'Elia Consulting. So it's Tina's business over here, right? I, I don't work at Hollywood, so people are going to come to me and say, cast you know, anything for my student film or my low-budget SAG film, and I love all of it. And so um, – and, 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 and folks will say, uh, so I, what I need um, in, a, in several weeks is a Native American trans woman of color – to play the lead in this story, 
Um, immediately, and the screenplay was written by a trans uh, Native American woman of color, and it needs to happen now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, and every lead I have is not available, and it's not available, and I'm searching, and I'm talking to British Columbia, <laughs> um, you know, and I'm like, okay, reaching out to people. And so, you know, and, and again, I don't have all the resources at my fingertips at all, and somehow it works out. And part of it is just sort of the uh, consistency and the drive in, in the business and in the art of casting. So there is actually no excuse. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there is actually no excuse at all. And, and there's a couple of uh, and there's a couple of things that folks do too because the life of film and, and many stories takes years. So and I actually know this for a fact. Uh, uh, I mean, I won't re- I won't reveal um, with what am I, one of my friends is doing, but th- they've invested in a man of color, and he's I, th- I I think he's in New York now studying. So he's even upping his game as a trans man of color who's doing really well in film, but he's still studying so that he can someday do a, a much bigger role. Is Either one, productions could take years. So if you know somebody, you know, so if you know somebody, whether it's Nigeria or Indonesia, and you're thinking, okay, they could actually play this role, they just need to work on their craft, you could, you know, you could invest in that. Um, I mean, just like there was a whole vision with Black Panther. So there was a vision of who was going to be cast in the United States, who was going to be cast in other countries, who was already cast, who were they still looking for? Like, and there was time. <laughs> and they have a budget. Right. And, and, all those, and that's great. That's what's supposed to happen. So not everybody, thank goodness, was, you know, was sort of like United States actress. Of course, we didn't know all of them. Like, that's the point. So we don't have to cast a star. That, that's a very old... And that's a dinosaur paradigm. Um, if somebody says, well, we got to have stars somewhere, I'm like, then y- you can make some other role, but you don't have to make that role. <laughs> I, I got a brilliant idea. How about make the straight friend? <laughs> the straight star. How about that? Yeah. How, about, how about make the sidekick the straight, the straight star? How about that? There you, you go. You, 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 you solved your problem. There you go. Thank you so much for that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. I guess, you know, I, I, I wouldn't want Constance Wu to play me. That would, that would just, because I'm just way too, I'm just not funny. But <laughs> <laughs> um, so in Overlook Latinas, I mean, yes. it's a solo show. Yeah. You're, you're, you're doing it all. Tell us. It's 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 great question. I loved how we walked through this this whole interview. Which, by the way, the audience, you have a chance to ask Tina your own questions. We're going to have a roaming mic, or John's going to roam with it. Um, <laughs> and and so think about these questions that you would like to ask uh, Tina. But you know, we started with the evolution of you, I think, mm-hmm. and then the inspiration behind a lot of your work and your yep. mom being for sure a, a lot of that. Yep. Uh, and now. X amount of years later, here we are in 2019. Yeah. Overlook Latinas. I, I checked out the trailer in which you open up with it's 2021. <laughs> yes. Um, so <laughs> talk to us about this solo show. Yes. Um, so first of all, what I want to say about uh, the solo show is it takes a team, just like all art, it takes a team. So I'm really grateful. So one, I'm grateful I've worked for years with David Ford as my dramaturg and and a solo performance coach. So a lot of solo performers in the Bay Area have worked with David Ford. And then I've worked for years with Mary Guzman, my director, um, who's ph- phenomenal and I love and adore. 
And and I have a great team at the Brava Theater, which I'm thrilled about. I've worked with my stage manager before, Misha Tayimba. Um, um, I'm thrilled I have an amazing queer consultant, Carolina Morales, um, et cetera. So I just want to give props, give props to the team, Kathy Anderson, the the uh, um, the lighting designer. So props, props, props. And then I want to give props to Gwen Park, who I hired as my video, not only my videographer, but also is working with me on the script, particularly for, for video as well. So what happened was 2016. Do we remember 2016? No. Great. <laughs> so there I was in David Ford's class. It was on a Tuesday night. Do you remember what happened on a Tuesday night in November? <sighs> Block it out. (laughs) Yep. That's what I did too. So rage, depression, checked out. uh, uh, I either wanted to eat a a bag of dark chocolate, some wine, didn't know where I was. So so suddenly the mood in our class was just shifting down. Like it was weird. It was in the floor. And I I didn't know what to tell my mind and soothe myself at this point. Mm-hmm. I just, it, I, 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 I really think this was about self-care, but also feeling like the trauma, the trauma, the trauma, the trauma that was going on and, and waking up in trauma the next day, you know, crying, rage, trauma. And at, and at that point, I had already been working on the show since at least the summer of 2016, um, but, st- but starting to really like kind of dig, like dig in, you know, dig, lay the foundation and the seeds into the show. And one cool thing is I did start writing it as the secret sequel to the Rita Hayworth of this generation, which was my other show. But I wrote it, but I wrote that with only the intention that a few of us knew that, that it had to stand alone as a show. And the Rita Hayworth of this generation has a screwball comedy but is very film noir you know sort of like queer 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 trans vegas <laughs> that nobody knew las vegas and there's this puerto rican puerto rican butch dyke from staten island angel torres who like you know puts on shows and, and has a best friend carla garcia gender non-conforming person so i i had already you know carl i already knew that angel was going to put the show on in vegas so so one thing that's great to, to kind of jump ahead with solo performances, I was like, what if I took some of the characters I loved and just put them in the future? Yeah, that, that's what I'll do. I'll put them in the future in New York City. They're working on a pilot, yada, yada. You know, laying down the foundation, laying down the foundation. Uh, Angel's already married to Lena Ann Horn, who happens to look like Lena Horn. Uh, Lena really wants to have a baby. Angel's busy with the pilot. But there's got to be, you know, an old flame comes back. Carmelita Cristina Rivera, you know, the Mm -hmm. Rita Hayworth of, you know, Vegas. So she comes back, you know, so she's going to try to bring all this, you know, she's going to bring crisis to this relationship our protagonist Angel's having. So I'm laying down the foundation and suddenly I think, how am I going to give this gift to myself and everybody else, my audience, hope? And I was like, I'm setting my show January 21st, 2021. Okay, let's set it in the future. I see the future. There's hope in the future. The hope is, thank God the election turned out way better this time, <laughs> says Carla. You know, so Angel's like, don't worry, don't worry. It's going to be better. It's going to be better. We're going to move ahead. Keep the momentum going. And then what I like to do in my writing is give, so my characters are, 
are, are, are not real people. You know, they may be influenced by real people, but they're not real people. But what I like to do is take actual people um, and give some historical context. So within the solo show, they're telling the story of their pilot that they're pitching, they're shooting in New York City, and by the end, we'll see what happens. And so the, what they wanted to do was tell the true story of Latinx stars. And I focused on Dolores Del Rio, Lupe Vales, and Rosario Rivaletes. So three Latinas. Um, but there's other people that they're also, they are looking for a Desi Arnaz. They're looking for a Maria Felix, a Carmen Miranda. So they're kind of looking for a whole bunch of actors of today, or today meaning 2021, <laughs> um, to cast. And, and they do find a Ramon Navarro. So I had to do, so I gave myself a lot of time. Mm-hmm. Art time, art takes a village of support time to do lots of research and then to go back and do more research and to go back and do more research. So one great place for uh, definitely queer women, uh, uh, lesbian, by research is Girls, Sappho Goes to Hollywood, Diane McLean. It's a really thick book. Mm-hmm. Girls, Sappho Goes to Hollywood. Um, and it does track a long period of time um, from like, 20s to almost 60s and it covers the sewing circle sewing circle sewing circle so this was a hollywood thing back 30s 40s it was called the sewing circle wow which meant that women knew that that's where we go (laughs) that's where we go to (laughs) so that's where we go to hook up have dates (laughs) hang out that's where we'd be heading (laughs) that's where we'd be heading michelle So whether married or not, it you know doesn't matter. Like sewing circle. In fact, what I loved was that Dolores Del Rio and her husband hosted the sewing circle, wow. and then it even says in Girls, like at one at one point, Dolores Del Rio's husband comes comes home and sees uh, Dolores Del Rio poolside, you know, massaging Greta Garbo's breasts. <laughs> like, I'm like, wow, they were very detailed about that. Yeah. But yes, it goes into a lot of detail. I mean, about a lot of people. Um, Ramon Navarro, there was definitely a lot of information because the studios really tried to squelch all the information about him, especially about Valentino and him having an affair. Um, any rate. So, uh, so I love being able to give, you know, actual historical content content as well as this ride of a story. And what I wanted to also give people, because of the election of 2016, not only did I want to give people hope, but my last show, The Rita Hayworth of This Generation, was sort of more noir and dramatic. And I, you know, and though I do have specific, like, serious moments in overlooked Latinas, specific serious moments, I actually wanted to write a farce and I wanted to give people a lot of comedy and a lot of nuttiness and a lot of like what's going to happen in complete craziness because, you know, by after an hour into the show, we're going to have nine people in a bedroom. We're going to have nine people in a bedroom. They're all in a bedroom. (laughs) All played by me. (laughs) So there's chaos going on. And so. I, I really wanted people to be able to enjoy the ride, and I also wanted to enjoy the ride myself. And I really, and I say that to artists and activists, is to balance, you know, the the trauma and the pain and the difficulty we go through with what's happening in the whole world and what's happening nationally and internationally is, 
you know, to also give ourselves um, a lot of love and a lot of balance around, you know, what's going to sustain us and make us feel good. So I really wanted to to offer something so that people could also laugh and feel good. And I realized as I was writing it that I was also writing um, a buddy show because Angel, uh, Puerto Rican Butch Dyke, and Carla Garcia, Puerto Rican uh, gender nonconforming person, are best friends making a show together. And so I, I, I also was, I also was like, oh, I didn't realize I was making a best friend show, <laughs> um, which is great because sometimes. Um, Sometimes, yeah, sometimes life can be really hard and painful. Yeah. And, and so I really believe in, you know, art also being really healing and joyful. So, yes, we're excited. It, it opens on the 16th of February. It closes on the 3rd of March. There's six shows. Six shows. Um, Bravo Theater. Presented at the Brava Theater, the Brava Theater and the yeah. Mission. Super excited. Give the URL for everyone listening. Yes. The www.brava.org to get tickets. Um, opening night, there'll be a party and reception afterwards. Um, I'm, I'm super honored and excited that my director, Mary Guzman, is here in the audience as well. <laughs> that is pretty special. It is pretty special and pretty exciting, which is um, thrilling. And my mother is coming out here from Massachusetts to see it, of course. And your dad? My dad is not. He's now 86, and he's, he, he doesn't get on planes. But my mom's like, I'm going to see it twice. I get on planes. Yeah. <laughs> my mom's, mom's younger, but it's exciting because, again, you know, full circle, she gets to see, you know, she gets to see how she's yeah. been a big inspiration, which is yeah. such well, an honor. Hearing your story, I think coming out on the radio is just perfect for Tina. That was, <laughs> that was awesome. We're going to open it up to the audience now for your questions for Tina. Anybody? Question? I'm going to ask one while they're thinking. Sure, sure. Um, we've asked you, like, where your politi- you know, political activism yeah. came from, your coming out story. Where does the comedy come from? I mean, was that all? Oh, you yeah. all, was, was your family a, a joking family or? How about that? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. So this is, this is where, it's, it, this is actually a really, um, this is where my parents are like multifaceted. Mm-hmm. Great. So yeah, so my dad is nine years older than my mom. So, so he, he was the roots of, um, he was the roots of the Marx Brothers because I did study Groucho Marx. I was the Latina lesbian Groucho Marx from Boston to San Francisco from like 1996 to uh, 2002. So that was another solo show I did. So my, so my, so even though my father is like, you know, reads books, classical music, vegetarian, uh, doctor. All these things doesn't fly on planes anymore. Uh, doesn't drive. Doesn't like to drive on highways. Um, so he was a huge. So any comedy out of out of sort of the you know, especially the Marx Brothers out of out of a um, old uh, black and white film time. He was a big influence. So my mom was as well, but um, even my brother was Groucho Marx. For, you know, like as a like. Uh, for Halloween. So there was, so, um, and my dad did act out characters. That was just intuitive. My mom did flamenco dancing. Both my parents write poetry. My uncle Jorge, who celebrates all the time, holidays with us as a painter and a voiceover artist and plays music. My dad was, was studied to be a concert pianist, but became a doctor. My brother's a musician. So culturally, I realized how much my mom brought also Cali Colombia 
to us because that's what she was doing as a kid. And yeah. the same thing with my uncle Jorge. So it's like puppeteering, singing, dancing, playing music. So I grew up with my parents having both like comedy and just kind of fun, but also old Hollywood sort of comedy. Um, you know, I must have watched Catherine Hepburn a bunch of times. So... Yes. So I, it is an interesting um, but very exciting balance between sort of like this sort of political activism and comedy. So I always yeah. So I was always drawn to comedy. And the reason why I was drawn to Groucho Marx is because I loved uh, his sharpness, anti-establishment. I loved the play with words. Um, and then in the 90s, when I started seeing solo performers, like I saw Pamela Sneed, I was really moved. And then in Boston, and then in 1994, I saw Marga Gomez, mm -hmm. and I got to interview her with the gay newspaper in Boston. So I was already looking at all these like incredible trailblazers and role models to me that would merge, you know, um, their politics with comedy. And, uh, and that's what really spoke to me. So good question, John. If anyone doesn't have a question, I'm going to put the director on, on the spot. Is that okay? Oh, yeah, yeah. Is she this much fun to direct? Uh, uh, I said this yesterday in um, rehearsal, that directing her is like being a coach of a major league baseball team that's in the World Series. That all you, <laughs> and seriously, because all you say to them is, well, maybe you need to live, lift your glove up an inch, and then the ball will go in easier. I mean, she's flawless she's playing nine different people and she's really clear about them so i especially when i first started directing her when we were doing the rita hayworth of this generation i would get confused if there's not only one person on stage because they would be to the point where i would be like well rita you have to do this and you wait a minute and tina you have <laughs> when you're them you have to do that she's incredible her attention to detail her Ability to take a note and run with it, it is a gift. It's a gift to be her director. It really is. Thank you. Well, I'm excited for the show, and I was telling you, Tina, it's uh, usually, I, you know, I get to see a press preview or, or something, if it's a book or an, an author or a film and an actor and actress. Uh, we went into this interview blind, and it's been super fun. Uh, I have a question. You know, yeah. the political activism part in yeah. our queer world, Yes. Can you're right, can get very painful and at times we're not just fighting with the others the enemy right. but ourselves yeah. and our community mm -hmm. and it can be very draining and when you couple that with with comedy and in your your art i think that can be very therapeutic and so um you know how does it feel when you get a bunch of queer activists you know who come to your show and you make them laugh <laughs> it it feels amazing it feels amazing it feels amazing because um because i re i really allow myself to leave you know leave tina delia identity in order to be all these other people and and not and not go like you know like what do you think of this character you know like what do you think of this you know like i don't i don't start i don't judge you know who i'm who i'm presenting so even so in other words I think it's really healthy to be like, I'm a flawed character, you know, so that suddenly it sort of takes away from this idea, you know, like, no, the, perfection is out the window. I've never, you know, there's no perfect character. There's, you know, there, there doesn't have to be um, 
uh, one person who's um, who, who seems like the shiny, brave, good person all the time. In fact, if anything, it's really good when you know it's just like all these characters are messy. <laughs> <laughs> they're all kind of having a cuckoo day and um and their you know internal dialogue and their external dialogue is messy um and uh and their heartache is out there you know everything is sort of out there i feel like um I thank thank you for using the word therapeutic. Yeah, I feel like i am trying to show not only is it therapeutic to me but i i do want folks to see like you know, the, the, a lot of times people will tell me I'm not an actor, but I went to take an improv class. And I was like, oh, that's so good. Just getting out of getting out of whatever, whatever we feel like we have to be. We have to be, we have to do, we have to present a place we have to stay. Because um, I, I can only sustain myself if I'm, right. you know, if I'm doing all these, you know, it's sort of like the yoga of the mind and the spirit and the energy and the you know, and in our toes, it's sort of like, you know, if the question was, you know, sort of like how, how do you, you know, take care of yourself or take breaks, I would say, you know, in a way, playing all these characters is, you know, is an example of um, people use the kid analogy, like when you see children really playing and if they, and, and then if they're really playing other characters and that, you know, and then they're sort of getting really into it and there's no sort of lens like, Oh my goodness, somebody's watching me, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, and then they're judging and what, you know, like, but instead, so being able to show that to people, including, you know, folks that I love and revere that I, that I might be, you know, like, oh my God, I can't believe you're at my show. Yeah. And I am acting like I'm seven. I'm like, oh, well, that's good. That's really healthy. Thing. Well, some of us need to act like we're seven <laughs> sometimes just to relax a little bit. Yep. Um, the other thing I really want to ask uh, or, or talk about is I love... Uh, you've embraced so many different parts of yourself, not just in your, the arts, but in real life, the identity. I think for many folks who came out during a certain period of, mm-hmm. or, or time, yep. the evolution of these different identities can get kind of overwhelming. But for you, it's almost like different gloves you're yeah. putting on every day and it's natural and, and that your role in this world by piecing politics into your art and being queer at the same time um, has really worked for you. Mm-hmm. And and I just wonder if, like, people who came out during the same time as you did or maybe earlier, you know, who are like, man, these, you know, kids these days are, like, queer and X, Y, Z. Like, what does that mean? Um, that you can do your part to to help others embrace it, too. Yeah, I feel like I've been so influenced by folks, first of all, that are older and younger than me. Um. Uh, and maybe when I was starting out, I might have known, you know, I might have no- I've may have known more folks, sort of, you know, in, co- in high school like me. Um, <laughs> so I don't know how much younger they would have been. Middle school, I don't know if I knew a lot of queer middle school people in high school. That being said, <laughs> that being said, I may. That being said, I, you know, it still is about even in, of course, even in high school, middle school. Of course, we were still looking for. Any influences, you know, television or film that at least we were like, there's something about that 11 year old, you know, (laughs) playing that role. That's kind of I was like, I like their quirkiness. It's speaking to something inside of me. Hmm. Um, But uh, I would but I would say that um, I feel like things just started rapidly changing um, in the 90s that 
by the time it was 1998 and I had been out for a while as queer, I had the honor of speaking um, every year. I think it comes to Boston every year that um, they called it at that point, they called it the Gay Youth Conference. Now they probably do call it, right, it's probably, it's probably definitely called something else than the Gay Youth Conference or the Queer Youth Conference. It might have been called the Queer Youth Conference back then. Um, and so already, already, uh, I was in my 20s. And so already being a speaker performer for the Queer Youth Conference, like <laughs> there were folks that already, I was like, you could be running circles around me. And that was, you know, decades ago. So as time went on, I feel like, I feel like what I've tried to do is um, keep, re- you know, keep researching, you know, like ancestors and elders that have left us but really made an impact because I feel so strongly, especially since I've talked about my art, that, that, uh, that we hear that, know that, and see that. You know, mainstream, you know, heterosexist world is not going to give us that. Whitewash world is not going to give us that. We have, to, we have to put that out there. We have to, you know, keep, keep talking about it and singing about it and uh, sharing, sharing with folks about it. Um, and, um, and, uh, and what I, I, I think that some things that happened, um, for folks my age, once we realized that the communities were expanding and that, and that I was being introduced language, um, and identities that, um, you know, I recognized I could either sort of become in this place of, you know, pushing back and being like, we didn't say that in our time. <laughs> What are you, you know, why don't you listen to us, folks? Um, which to me feels very sort of ageist perspective. And 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 also, and also I, w- I kind of looked at it like, how do I want to see myself, you know, like, so if I want to, if I want to be 110 and still have all, all of my faculties in place, how do, how do I want to, how do I want to roll with life? And I'm like, I think I just want to really you know, keep trying to embrace like where, wherever we're going um, as communities so that we, so that uh, instead when young folks are like, oh my gosh, we lost all these people, for instance, um, you know, during the AIDS epidemic, like that it, do- it's, it doesn't become about polarizing or pointing fingers um, or with politics as well. You know, folks that are like, I don't understand, you know, the new, you know, non-binary or why do we have gender, you know, all gender bathrooms. I feel like, you know, it is, uh, I have a responsibility of being a part of listening and being a part of really, um, uh, participating. I, um, because I grew up in the seventies and like, I, I don't have amnesia. I would knock on wood if I could. I have no amnesia. I have a good memory. I was told as an actor many years ago that um, many, 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 many casting directors have great memories, um, and I have a great memory. Um, I'm not, I'm not an engineer <laughs> or a mathematician, but I have a great memory as far as you know faces and people. So I have a great memory as far as I know what it was like in the '70s, and I know what it was like in the '80s, and I know it was like in the '90s, even if it wasn't impacting me the same way, like. Like, for instance, when I touched upon um, the AIDS epidemic. So, um, so I, yes, I feel a responsibility to participate with where we are and where we're going. I love that. I love that so much. I think that makes it uh, a better today and a tomorrow uh, with that perspective. 
Thank you so much for joining us here at the Commonwealth Club. John, do you have any last questions? This is a hack question. (laughs) It's the kind of thing people often ask people who are doing a bunch of different media. Yeah. But I think you're going to have a great answer, and that is, do you prefer stage, film, TV? I mean, what, what does where you are doing your performance, how is that different to you? And, and what gives you the most, you know, just enjoyment? I, I really love it all because I, I, I do shift where my heart is at and where my center is at and where I want to be at different times. And so there's a time for me to want to completely emerge in a solo show and go there. Um, There have been times where it was so nice to be like, oh, my God, I'm an actor with other people on a stage. (laughs) Like like that, like like, like that's crazy refreshing, too. I was just like (laughs) um, and then and then there's times that I love being on a film and I uh, and I love being in a web series and um, and having a whole different perspective as well, because I'm. I'm just playing, I feel like I'm playing with different parts of, of my brain. And then I'm also developing character and going from being really big, you know, visually, um, you know, sort of acting craft wise, and then having to really bring it in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I, yes, I feel like I'm working different muscles. In a way for me, it's almost like um, s- sometimes I like to lift weights and sometimes I go for a jog or walk and sometimes I like to do yoga. So I I feel like it. Uh, I feel like those fields of of where I go as an actor performer are change all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so great. Well, thank you all for thank joining you us everybody. here. Thank, thank you, you, Tina Delia. Thank you, John. Make sure you check out Tina and her new solo show coming up at the Bravo Theater, February sixteenth. Opening up February sixteenth, ending March sixth. Only six shows, so get your tickets. And and there's a a flyer that you can take home today for everyone who's attended. Uh, We're excited for the next few shows coming up at the Commonwealth Club. We've got Jane Kim next week, a former D6 supervisor. Brianna Sinclair is one of the first out trans singers who's performed with the San Francisco Symphony will be with us. We'll be in the main auditorium and she's going to (gasps) sing a special song. So if you can make it out for that lunch hour. Um, And some big names, some really big names and we're really close to being able to um, announce them, but let's just put it this way. A Tony Award winning actor Yep, um, coming in March uh, and a soul singer, um, uh, one of the first out lesbian soul singers. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> I'm going to yes. crap my pants um, when that all <laughs> happens. I'm not joking. So make sure you check out commonwealthclub.org slash MMS for this future scheduling. We'll see you next time. Yay. Thanks, everybody, for being here. Woohoo! Thanks for joining us for the Michelle Meow Show, your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. We're here every Thursday live at the Commonwealth Club. And you can listen to past shows at commonwealthclub.org slash MMS.